0: If I have not had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. We are in a series on the fruit of the Spirit. You can find that in Galatians 5, but what I want to ask you to do is would you open up your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 4. That's where we're going to be teaching from this morning. As you're turning there, I want to read to you the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Paul says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self. Control. So today we dig into faithfulness. Now, if you are new to the Bible, the Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. In fact, it's uh, called Koine Greek. It's an ancient first century uh, Greek language that was used very commonly as people spoke to each other in the Roman world. Uh, like any other language, words have meaning and nuance, and translating Ancient Koine Greek into English is not an easy job. One of the things that I love about the Bible that you have in your hands is it is a masterpiece. It is a work of art. Hundreds of thousands of hours over millennia have gone into uh, giving you an incredible translation of your Bible. And what we find is that there are some words in the Greek language that just kind of have this nuance and meat to them. And it's really hard to find English words that capture the heart of it. And as we come to this fruit of faithfulness, I want to show you where this word comes from and help you understand it a little bit better. And I think it's going to shed some light under what the Spirit of God wants to do in each one of us in this crazy political season, uh, where we more than ever need the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the the word, the Greek word for faithfulness here, it's actually a word that we've talked about quite a bit as Village Church. It is the word pistis. And it sort of sounds like a cuss word, but it's it's not. I assure you, it's a normal, good, wholesome, healthy word. Uh, pistis. Now, this can also be translated as a noun in a couple different ways. It can be translated as faith, trust, belief, and sometimes, as in today, faithfulness. As a verb, it can be to believe in or to trust in. As an adverb, it's going to be translated as faithful. But they all have the same root word, which is pistis. So, in the most Literal sense, the fruit of the Spirit is faith. The fruit of the Spirit is faith. But in the English language, we, we use this word in some weird ways that doesn't really allow us to get to the meaning of it. So the translators did an incredible job by, I think, giving us really the oomph and the meaning of what the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 is trying to get at, which is the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Now, now, faithfulness is great on so many levels, but let's, let's just define the word pistis generally and then give it some more nuance. Pistis at its core is confidence in someone. At its core, it's confidence in someone. So here's what I want to do. It's a great opportunity for you to take notes. I'm going to give you a 101 on pistis, five things you really need to know to understand the oomph and the depth and the nuance of this Greek word. All right, number one pistis is essentially about a relationship. Uh, You um, are always going to direct pistis at someone. Uh, In the Bible, it is almost always used about a relationship. And so fundamentally, we have to know this. It is a relational word. It is about how you are going to relate to someone else. Number two, in light of this, pistis is actually about Soul dependence. And now we're going to talk about how the Bible uses it. Uh, I want you to think about the word faith in two ways: Um, a little f faith and capital F faith, or lowercase faith and uppercase faith. The lowercase faith, the small f, is this idea that um, when you place your confidence in maybe your friends or your family or your spouse or your children or your parents or or somebody of the sorts. And this is a good thing, and, and everybody can have confidence in other people. And the healthier your community, the healthier the people in your life, the more this that you are going to give to other people, the more faith, the more small f faith you're going to have in people around you. Uh, we should not have confidence in people who are untrustworthy, so we don't have faith in everybody, but we do have small f faith in some people. Now, capital F faith, this is where uh, I want to talk about this because this is a little bit new of of a different nuance here. Capital F faith is different, and this is most often what the Bible's referencing. And by God's design, the human soul can only give capital F faith to one thing or person. It refers to the one in whom we entrust our soul. This is capital F faith. Now, you can have lowercase faith in a whole bunch of different people. But your soul is designed to give capital F faith only to one person. And here's what we see. If you're putting your capital F faith in a political candidate, how's it going for you? Not so well. If you put a capital F faith in something like a job or the economy, not so well. It's fickle. It's up. It's down. Your soul is designed so that you take your capital F faith, you place it in God through Jesus Christ. Everybody is going to place their capital F faith somewhere. And what God wants you to do is to trust in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who has the power to redeem your soul, to forgive sins, to give you a new body after you die in the resurrection. He is the only one who has the power to do everything you need to do. Third thing about pistis that you need to know, it is one of Jesus's highest values. Whenever Jesus sees capital F faith, when he sees pistis in someone, he stops He calls it out. Like If he's with a group of people, he's going to say, everybody pause, everybody chill. Look at this guy. I love this. He loves it, and wherever he sees it, he calls it out, whether it's in a a centurion or a child. It doesn't matter. When Jesus sees it, he's just like, that's what I'm talking about. When you entrust your soul to me, it is a beautiful thing. When you place your faith in me, it's wonderful. Hebrews 11.6 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Conversely, with faith, when you act in faith, when you place your soul's confidence and dependence on Jesus Christ, the Lord is so happy and pleased. Number four about pistis, you need to know. Salvation begins only and ever with pistis. Capital F, faith. That the moment you entrust your soul and depend on Jesus your salvation in that moment begins. You can never ever begin salvation by good works. It only ever happens when somebody says, I am placing my soul's confidence in Jesus. That's it. There is no other way to receive forgiveness, salvation, redemption, a relationship with God ever. Now, number five, I think you've probably noticed this as you look around, but Not all Christians have the same amount of pistis. Romans 12.3 says this. Think with sober judgment. Be clear-headed, clear-minded. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So that when you come to Christ, there will be some people who have, we'll call it the mustard seed. A little bit more than enough to save you but you have the mustard seed of faith. And there are some people who have the mountain of faith. Like you've ever met those people and they're just like, oh, I totally believe I've never doubted. I've never had a question in my entire life. I am not that guy. I am the person from a very young age who had question after question, after question, after question. When I look at the disciples, I don't really relate to Peter and John. I relate to Thomas. I relate to Thomas because he was initially like, well, prove it to me prove it to me. I want to see it. How does it work? I've got question, question, question. And that's how my brain has worked. And you've noticed if you look around, there are some people, I remember, especially in high school, I had a, I had a buddy and uh, I would always say to him, like, do you ever, do you ever struggle with your faith? He's like, no, I just believe. I just, I just believe. You just got to believe. It's just so easy. You just believe it. And I'm like, it's not that easy for me. What you'll find is in in, in any church, there are going to be people who have a mustard seed and they wrestle And they fight because God apportions to each a measure of faith. Isn't that interesting? That there's some people, when they come to Christ, they just have this unbelievable amount of faith. And I'll be honest, I'm very jealous of them. And so faith is something that is allotted to each in a different way, but it's also something that, honestly, God can grow in each one of us. And so here's what God wants to do for each one of us, is he wants to grow the fruit of the spirit of pistis in every single one of us, particularly in this crazy season when we need it the most. Let's just summarize now. We're going to come back. I want to define pistis in the Bible. Uh, What God wants to grow in each one of us is unshakable confidence in him. God wants to grow unshakable confidence in him. God wants you to have unshakable confidence in his promises, in his word, in his character. God wants you to wake up when the whole world is acting so weird. He wants you to wake up on November 4th, whatever the results of the election are, no matter how crazy the world is going to be on that day. And he wants you to look toward heaven with unshakable confidence that our God is sovereign, that he is good, that he is up to something, that nothing slips past him, that he's going to get glory out of this. Our God is the sovereign in control. And we, as his people, as his children, adopted through faith, we are to wake up with confidence that our God is good. All right, Mark chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 35. And here's what's been happening. Jesus has been teaching on a boat to crowds all day long. And they're probably not all easy crowds, meaning uh, some people are probably angry at him. Some people are very skeptical about everything he says. Some people can't get enough of him. They follow him everywhere. They're like, we just want to hear more. They're hearing concepts they've never heard before. And there's probably a lot of uh, exchange with Jesus. What did you mean by this? Jesus, how could you say that? But Jesus, the Bible says this. So all day long, he's teaching to a very diverse group of people. And he's opening up God's word and helping them understand it. And even though Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man. And does Jesus, the fully man, get very tired and exhausted? The answer is yes. Yes, he does. So in Mark chapter four, verse 35, he's wiped. It says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. They are in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee at its deepest part is 141 feet deep. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It sits 700 feet below sea level. It is about the size of Washington, D.C. And what happens in the Sea of Galilee is that it can be a beautiful clear day. And because of where it's located, um, in about five to 10 to 15 minutes, all of the weather can change on a dime and it can become life-threatening to whoever is on the lake. And so they are smart men. They're fishermen. If ever there was a place you as a fisherman didn't want to die, you'd be on a boat in a lake. Like, come on, we're better than this. And so Jesus, though, says, we're going to the other side. And so they're going to say, all right, let's get to the other side. They take him as he was. He's in the boat, verse 38, it says, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Uh, some people have tried to make this mean something like, look how peaceful Jesus is. He's got such soul peace that he can sleep in a storm. I actually don't think that this is what it's about. I think he's just absolutely completely wiped. Like there are these moments where um, my kids are super tired and they're in the car and I'm shaking them. And I'm like, get up, get up, let's go. And they're like, they can't move. And you have to throw them over your shoulder and get them in the house. Like that's kind of the kind of tired that I imagine Jesus is in this moment. Uh, He's sleeping through a very, very dangerous storm. Everyone is panicking. Verse 38 goes on and says, they woke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are... Perishing. So let's be clear. These men are afraid and they're panicking. They're afraid, number one, that they're going to die. And they're afraid, number two, that Jesus just doesn't even care. They believe that they are going to die in this moment. And when they see Jesus just napping, they have this concern that he is just not interested in helping. And they wake him up, and I've been wondering okay? Why didn't they ask him to get up and tell the sea to be calm? It's interesting because when they wake him up, the idea is get a bucket and help us get the water out. That's, that's what's on their mind. You need to know they don't have any notion in their mind that Jesus can control the wind and the waves. That, that's not even in their brain. Now for us, we know what he's capable of because we've heard the story. But if you're putting yourself in these guys' shoes, they have very low expectation of Jesus. In fact, they have a very small understanding of who he is. I have another question when I read this. When Jesus wakes up, what's his mood like? You know what I'm saying? Like, have you ever woken up like, is your spouse the grumpy person? Don't touch me. Leave me alone. Like, the happy person? Hello, the world is wonderful. Everybody is happy. I think I'm the delirious person who's like, uh pickles on, pickles on Friday, what? Like, what are you even talking about? I don't even know where I am. What's happening? True story, my dad will kill me for this, but oh well. Um, I'd wake up, or I'd come home, and uh, I had to be home at curfew at a certain time, and they'd go to sleep, and they had a rule. The rule was, wake us up when you get home. Then they look at the alarm clock, and they make sure that I'm home by curfew. So every night, it was the same thing. I'd, I'd come home, and I'd wake my dad up, and I'd be like, dad, dad, dad every time. I thought for sure I was going to kill my dad because that's how my father wakes up. Dad, dad. What? Like, So I go to my mom. mom. I'm like, mom, wake dad up. Because I thought I was going to kill the guy. She's like, Danny, wake up. Like every single time. Like I just wonder like how did Jesus wake up? So verse 39 says he did wake up. That's my little, you know, really in-depth Bible teaching there for you. Uh, And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and, and he says to the sea... Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Duh, he's Jesus. But, but the disciples, they are in shock. They don't know what to do with what's happening right in front of them. And He said to them in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no pistis? You still have no faith? Do you still have no confidence in me? Okay, have you not watched all the things I've done so far? You know I can like, I don't know, read minds, grow back limbs, raise the dead, do miracles. Like, you know that I can basically do anything. So when you think you're going to die and there's this big storm, why are you so afraid? I'm literally with you. You have seen me do incredible things and you still lack confidence in me. And then verse 41 is actually really surprising. It says, and they were filled with great fear. I would have thought the answer would have been appreciation, awe, gratitude. No, actually, this is an interesting turn in the story. I want you to see what happens. No longer are they afraid of the water. They're afraid of Jesus. If you have ever seen somebody with a word command a hurricane you might be afraid of them as well. If they can do this, what else can they do? Verse 41 goes on. They said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What's interesting is they didn't have a category in their brains that he was capable of this. I want to pull back from this text and I want to remind you of three things. Number one, I want you to remember that the disciples are newer to following Jesus. They are just wrapping their heads around all of the things that they're experiencing when I think of people who just placed their faith in Jesus for the first time and they're getting to know the Bible, they don't know everything. They know enough to be saved. They know enough to know that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and was raised from the dead. They know enough to know some of the basic character attributes of God. He's in control, whatever that means. He's good, despite what I feel. Like they, they've got these categories, but when you get a new believer and they're learning Jesus, they're learning how he works, they're learning what it means to have the Holy Spirit inside of you and to be a part of the people of God and interact with the word of God, And it's kind of a new process. So I want you to remember for them, this is kind of new for them. And so two chapters later in Mark chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. And you know what their response is? You can walk on water too? Are you kidding me? I mean, I know you can stop a hurricane, but walking on water, that's next level, man. And they're regularly shocked. And all the way to the end of the book, Mark's just telling the story of story after story. And every time they're like, whoa, we didn't know you could do that. Who is this guy? God, like I said, And then when he tells them, I'm going to die and rise again from the dead, they're like, not possible. Like, drives you nuts when you watch this. But Jesus is is walking them into a deeper faith, which is number two. You got to remember, Jesus is taking them on a three-year journey. He is creating experience after experience for these men. And every one of these experiences, the seed that he's planting in their heart and their mind, so that later after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they could look back and see, this is not just some dead guy. He's not just some miracle worker, but this is the son of God with power, validated through the resurrection of Jesus. And he is giving these men unforgettable experiences in planting seeds that will later bear fruit. Now, number three, you have to remember when you read the Gospels, particularly this story, they did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit yet. The Holy Spirit is a gift given to believers after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It happens in Acts 2 and Pentecost. It doesn't happen in the Gospels. And so their loyalty to Jesus It's really strong, but their confidence in Jesus is very weak. You can have great loyalty to somebody and very low confidence, and that's where they're at with Jesus. They are trying to get higher confidence, and Jesus is trying to grow their faith in them, but when they receive the Holy Spirit, their confidence blows up. What happens after they receive the Holy Spirit is that these men and more— They left Israel and they traveled all over the known world in every different direction. And they preached the gospel. They saw people saved. They started churches and almost every single one of them inevitably in far off places of the world were murdered because of their faith in Jesus. The evil one hated that the gospel was spreading from Jerusalem and Judea into the outer ends of the world. And so he raises up persecution and every one of these guys is attempted to be murdered. All of them but one are actually killed for proclaiming Jesus Christ. They went from this, in Mark chapter 4, like, you can do that? No way. To literally bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, which is a testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I know, Villa Church, with all of us in this room, that Jesus individually is taking every one of you on a personal journey to grow and to deepen your faith. There are experiences that he is entering into, creating for you, redeeming for you, showing you his faithfulness and his goodness, that he is reliable, that he is trustworthy. You have the capital F faith to save you. Now he wants to grow your faith in him deeper and deeper and deeper. He wants you to move you and I past just being a Thomas into somebody who is more and more having unshakable faith and confidence in who he truly is. Let's take this to our so what. Here's our first so what. Faithfulness starts with faith in Christ. The confidence that you want to have in God starts, it begins with you personally placing your faith in Jesus Christ. I don't care if you are a child, a young adult, a teenager, if you're 90 plus years old, that the fruit of the spirit, this confidence that God wants to grow in you, cannot and will not happen until the first decision is made where you take your capital F faith and you place it in Jesus Christ and you declare, I believe, I have confidence that your word tells me that I am a sinner and I have confidence in that truth. Your word tells me that Jesus died on the cross for sins. In fact, I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I have confidence in that. Your word tells me that he loves me. I have confidence in that. Your word tells me that he rose again from the dead. I have confidence in that. Your word tells me that he's coming back again. I have confidence in that. Your word tells me that it's not the good people who go to heaven, but it's forgiven people who place their faith in Jesus. I have confidence in that. And so before the Holy Spirit is ever given to anybody, they have to take their capital F faith, place it in Jesus. And the moment you do that, you're given the Holy Spirit. And that's where the Holy Spirit now begins to grow all of this fruit inside of you. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control did i miss any of them i think i got them all right i've been working on that for like 8 weeks straight i always i always miss one or two in the middle faithfulness starts with faith in christ so if you're here today and you have personally never made a decision to trust in christ Everything that God wants to grow in you can't happen until you personally trust in Jesus. And if that's a decision you want to make today, I want to encourage you. It'll be the best decision you ever make. We would love to know. We'd love to encourage you and to support you and resource you and to pray with you. And if that's a decision you make, please let us know. And we want to, we want to champion that in you. But here's my second so what. Pray that God gives you greater faith. Pray that God gives you greater faith. This is what the Lord wants to do. He wants to grow pistis faith. He wants to grow this unshakable confidence in God, in you. So we go before the Lord and we say, God, my faith struggles. Today, I'm doubting. I want to believe that you have all of this under control, but it's just hard for me to watch the news or to see what's happening in my school or to see what's happening in my city and believe that like, somehow you're good and you got this. I feel like if you had this, everything would be easier, but it's not, it's crazier. And so God, would you just give me deeper, unshakable faith in you? Uh, It's interesting because I think when people read the fruit of the Spirit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness, our automatic application for many people is, I'm going to be a man or a woman or a student or child who keeps my word. And that's a good application, by the way, But that is not, first and foremost, what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is that God wants to grow your unshakable confidence in him. And as that happens, you will become a man or woman or student or child who keeps their word. You will become somebody who actually takes big risks for God. All of that, great so what's, but they are rooted in you being faithful to God first and having this unshakable confidence in who he is. So what does God want for you? God wants for you in light of the shakeable world we live in, the tenuous nature of the political landscape, all of the disagreements between your friends and your social media friends and everything else and all the tension and all the bickering and all the complaining and all the anger and all the sin and all the unrighteousness. Like your confidence cannot be in any of this. It's got to be in God and I want to just show you from, from the book of Hebrews chapter 11, I want you to just listen and kind of soak this in. Hebrews chapter 11 is this entire chapter on faith. And they talk about heroes of the faith and people who, because of their unshakable confidence in God, did incredible things. And I want, to just, I want you to just enjoy Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 to 40. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David and Samuel, And the prophets who, through pistis, through this unshakable confidence in God, because of this, watch what they were able to do. Who, through pistis, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. People who have unshakable confidence in God oftentimes will subject themselves to things where they could possibly be harmed. And it says others, it says, um, uh, some were tortured, refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, from the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their pistis, did not receive on this side of heaven what was promised, since God had provided something better. I'm telling you, when you have unshakable confidence in God, you will live a life that is fundamentally different. You will live a faithful life to God, to his word. You will do things that other Christians will look at and go, yeah, I'm not sure if I could ever do that. And you're going to look at them and say, but if God asked me to do it, I have unshakable confidence in God way back when I taught a sermon series to the mighty men of David and you know, a couple of the characters that just inspired me were the ones who when the entire nation is running away usually from the Philistines what they would do is they would look at everybody running and they would remember the promise of God the promise of God was was victory in these wars and so all alone they would go against the tide the entire nation, their entire army is running away and fleeing. And you know what they would do? They, they would say, I would rather die believing in the promises of God, run toward my death with unshakable confidence that my God will keep his word. And you know why they were called mighty men? Because they ended up almost single-handedly taking out these opposing armies because God was with them, because God fulfilled his promise, and they were renowned as mighty men. Not mighty men because they're incredibly strong. They were mighty because they believed and they had unshakable confidence in the promises of God. And this unshakable confidence empowered them to go against the grain of the entire nation of Israel and to onslaught these foreign armies and do incredible, powerful things. And God even used the strength and the faith of one man in those circumstances to fulfill his promise. I'm telling you guys, God wants to grow in you unshakable confidence in his word. I don't know your context. You're probably not going to be a mighty warrior with a sword wheeling against the Philistines. But I don't know what crazy God is going to send you into and say, trust me, the spirit wants to grow confidence in you. He wants to grow confidence that you just lean on me and you know whether or not it works out for your ease or your difficulty, you're going to do what is right because our God is for you and he keeps his promises and he will never leave you or forsake you and he loves you. And whatever you sacrifice for him in this world will be paid even more in the next world. And whatever you lose here, it'll be well worth it because he is just. And so again, Village Church, I don't know what what the Lord is asking you, but I do know this, that the Holy Spirit... If you've trusted in Christ, it's in you. And there's probably something that the Holy Spirit is encouraging you, provoking you to take a next step on, to trust him. And it might be something that you've been afraid of for some time. And so this is the moment where you say, God, please give me greater confidence in you. I need it. Because right now, inherently in myself, I don't have the confidence I need to do the things you're asking me to do. So would you, would you give me more faith? As we come to communion, I want to draw your minds back to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's been actually, uh, I've sort of wanted to preach about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane through every single one of the fruit of the Spirit, because for me, it's this pinnacle place where all of them see their greatest expression. But Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he has unshakable confidence in the heart, will, and plan of his Father. He also has a ton of human anxiety in that moment. He's sweating blood, he's anxious, he's pleading with God. Uh, I love in this moment that we see the humanity of Christ, that even when you're fully God, you have the full range of emotions and experiences. And so Jesus goes before his father and he says, I know you're capable of anything. I know that you can do this in any other way, but if it is possible, would you take this cup from me? Jesus had a hunch what he was going to endure, which is going to be the full weight of the wrath of God on his body and his soul and his emotions. He was going to be tortured, mocked, spit upon, punished. Like he knew conceptually what he was about to experience. And he goes before the Lord and his father. And he says, like, if you can take this from me, but then I love the line, but not my will, but yours be done. Whatever you tell me to do, I believe I have unshakable confidence that whatever it is, you're going to be with me and it is going to be good. And I want, to, I want to go into your will with unshakable confidence. And I just love Jesus's example in this moment. I love his example in this moment. And I look to this and I just think, God, make me more like Christ. Make me just so unshakably confident in what you're telling me to do and your goodness and your promises. I need a whole lot more of that. So in a little bit, we're going to partake of communion. And, and I want to encourage you to do a couple things. First, I want to encourage you uh, to repent. I want to encourage you to go before the Lord and apologize and own the areas where you have not had confidence and you've lived like it. I also want to encourage you to be reminded of what these elements represent. These elements represent for every act of faithlessness on our part, he is faithful and the blood of Christ covers every one of our sins. I want you to reflect and I want you to express gratitude to God for how good he has been to you despite our regular struggle to have confidence, to have faith, to have pistis. Uh, Right under your chairs are uh, communion elements. And uh, there's bread on top and juice underneath. And and I want to encourage you with a couple things. Um, First of all, uh, there's one big rule we have in communion here at Village Church, and it's this. If you have personally trusted in Christ, I don't care where you go to church, I don't care how old you are, if you've made a decision to trust in Christ, we want to encourage you to partake of communion with us. Uh, Communion is for anyone to remember what Jesus has has done on the cross for them if you've placed your faith in him. Um, Again, if you go to a different church, that doesn't matter to us. Some of you are kids and you're wondering, can I partake of communion? Uh, Two rules for kids. Number one, your parents have to be a okay with it. Um, Parents, there's no right or wrong in this situation. But number two is that kids, um, you had to have made a personal um, profession of faith in Jesus. You have to have had trusted in Jesus personally. Um, You've had to come before him and say, I believe that you, Jesus, are my God. I love you. Forgive me of my sins. And so if you've made a profession of faith in Christ, if you have placed your capital F faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you, if your mom and dad are okay with it, you can partake of these elements together with us. So what we're going to do is have a time of silence. When the time of silence is done, um, I'm going to read some scripture and then we're going to partake of the elements together at the same time and then we're going to close our service and worship. So let's have a time of silence right now before the Lord.